0: fit toys
1: welcome to episode 677 with my guest holly crumpler we're going to be talking about dissociative identity disorder and just something for you to uh think about when you're listening to this a lot of people there, there's there's a, a misnomer that it's a super super rare thing but Actually, more people have dissociative, and this is according to the DSM 5, uh, more people have dissociative identity disorder than have OCD. Um, according to the DSM, 1.5% uh, of the population uh, has dissociative identity disorder. And Holly also wanted me to stress that she is not a therapist and she's only sharing her own personal experience. We are at 870 paid Patreon members per month. We're about halfway towards our goal. And if you find value in this podcast, I would love it if you could uh, become a donor. Uh, we, uh, you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. And uh, there are different tiers of rewards uh, based on how much you're signing up for. And we've really been enjoying our Sunday Zoom hangout support group meetings for people at the $20 and above level. We've consistently had about 15 to 22 people, and it's a really, really cool, safe space. Uh, People getting really vulnerable and supporting each other, which you know I love. This is from the Shouldn't... Oh, and Happy New Year. I hope you enjoy the new uh, opening montage. And if you don't, uh, please go fuck yourself. Please do it hard. Please do it fast. Uh, and please do it right again with no refractory period. This is from the Shouldn't Feel This Way survey, and this is filled out by Torple. Uh How would you like people to think of you? People thinking of me is terrifying to imagine. I want people to think of me as a piece of furniture. Uh, I hope it's well-crafted. How does it feel writing that? It's heartbreaking and lonely, and it's not how I want to feel. How would you use a time machine? I'd go back to when my grandma had my dad, and I would try to help lessen her shame about having a baby out of wedlock. Um, I'm supposed to feel calm about going outside, but I don't. I feel small and scared. I'm supposed to feel in control about eating and excoriation, but I don't. I feel pathetic and weak. How does it make you feel writing your real feelings out? Pissed off that it takes so fucking long to manage unhealthy behaviors when I have so fucking many. Sure, I'm working hard in therapy on interpersonal trauma, but I'm still at the mercy of all my other problems. I destroy my body more and more every day. Do you think you're abnormal for, for feeling what you do? No, I know other people struggle with this. Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? It did at first, but without actually connecting to people who feel like me, it can only offer some comfort. I'm too scared of people to find a group, but I know a part of me aches for human connection. I thank you for for sharing that. And I have yet to meet a person that showed up to a support group that was happy about it. Where it was at the top of their list of things that they think sounded like a an awesome idea and couldn't wait to do. For many of us, especially those of us who struggle with connection and intimacy and vulnerability, it's the last house on the block. But thank God, it's on the block. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Burn after reading done. What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? I'm no better than anyone else. I'm no worse than anyone else. I'm one of many. I fucking love that. That is, I mean, talk about a way to disarm the ego because the ego, in my opinion, cannot conceive of us being one of many. It thrives on telling us that we're better than other people or worse than other people. Um any comments to make the podcast better. Feature an episode in which a Jungian analyst breaks down Gracie's dreams. Well, it's interesting that you write that because for Christmas I sent Gracie to a Jungian analyst. And I mean, boy, you talk about uh Kismet. Is that what is, is Kismet the same thing as serendipity? I forget. Anyway, uh I talked to the therapist, and when Gracie is running in her dreams, um, the therapist told me that Gracie is actually running from her problems and that the treats that she longs for actually are her mother's love. This is from the "What Has helped you survey, and this is filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself mischaracterized. Uh, What are your issues and struggles? Imposter syndrome. What's helped you deal with them? Uh, To my imposter syndrome. I am aware now, after all these years we've spent together, that I will never be good enough. I respect your evaluation and acknowledge it. I also forgive us, my love, because we will never actually be good enough. Our best will always need to suffice. It is all we have, my dear We will give and forgive our best every day. Love it. What have people said or done that's helped you? A woman once told me that my smile makes other people want to smile. I try to remember that when I feel worthless. I love that too. Boy, when you're depressed, how fucking hard is smiling? (laughs) It's like, as I often say, bench pressing 500 pounds. This is from the uh, Religious Abuse Survey, and this is filled out by Helen in a handbasket. I see what you did there, Helen. Uh, I was raised in a very strict Mormon family with high expectations to obey every rule, commandment, and suggestion by a church leader. How could that go wrong? To do anything differently meant my eternal salvation and my family's was at risk. I dated a non-Mormon guy for 6 plus years and my parents were so disappointed even though he is still the nicest and sweetest guy I've ever dated. We did get engaged but I'll never be but I'll never be 100% if the reason I called off the wedding at age 22 is because of my own doubts or the worry about disappointing my parents. Mormons are really good at driving home that fear of if you don't fall in line, our, eternally fami- our eternal family is at stake. Couple that with severe emotional neglect and you've got a harmful recipe for growing up feeling ashamed of things that are a normal part of growing up. Have your experiences affected how you view that specific religion or organized religion as a whole. I've had to unlearn, and I'm still learning, to not think in terms of black and white, right or wrong, etc. I think organized religion is detrimental to self-esteem, especially for women with the purity culture bullshit they preach. And it teaches people to rely on made-up teachings, rules, etc., instead of trusting one's gut instincts. Being around any kind of religious behavior or language makes me feel like I'm going to break out in hives. Mormonism did so much harm to me that I'm still trying to unpack at age 47. Yeah, isn't it interesting how sometimes being around somebody, it could be something that nobody else notices, and it's just like, oh my God, i I feel like my head is going to explode if I have to stay here for one more second. This is from the Love Survey, and this is filled out by Frodo without a cause. And they write, I love it when I catch myself smiling or laughing genuinely at my dog because she does something funny or cute. I, can't, I can have been miserable and irritated the whole day, not giving a smile to a single person. But to her, they come naturally, and I'm often surprised by the sudden feeling of happiness that comes with them. Then she wiggles her tail, and for a moment, everything makes sense. I love it when Paul says, put that in your pipe and smoke it, during the podcast. It brings out this picture of Paul and Gandalf from Lord of the Rings sitting in the afternoon sun, smoking each of their pipes and talking. As Paul says this, uh, as Paul says, this Gandalf chuckles wisely every time. Uh, Gandalf and I had a falling out over Christmas. He brought a ham. I told him to bring turkey, and uh, he's put a spell on me, and uh, I now have size nineteen feet. I don't know. Did was Gandalf ever to, uh, was he ever able to cast spells? Uh, lastly, I love that during Christmas, people that live alone will decorate their house or flat, hanging a star in the window or putting something up outside. It might feel a little sad, but it also makes me see that we are all trying to communicate something to each other. I'm alone and Christmas is a hard time in many ways for me, but I hang up a shining star in my window and try my best despite the difficult feelings that these festive holidays might bring. I guess it's a way to put Christmas in my pipe and smoke it, good or bad. I love that. I love that. I did lights this year, and uh, they're, what is it, January 4th? uh, They're still up. Uh, The tree is still up, and it's not because I'm loving them. It's because uh, I don't want to drag the tree out and have to clean up the pine needles. That's what the baby Jesus means to me is vacuuming up pine needles. Did I misinterpret the Bible? We are going to take a quick break and see if we have any sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Factor. We talk often on the podcast about what you put in your body affects your energy. It affects your mood. uh, Often it affects how you feel about yourself. Factor's ready-to-eat meal delivery. Fix the stress out of meal planning and sets you up for success in the new year. Skip the grocery stores, prep work, and cooking fatigue. Instead, get chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door... ...with over 35 meals to choose from per week... ...including options like keto, calorie-smart, vegan-plus, veggie, and more. Plus over 55 weekly add-ons. You'll have a ton of nutritious and flavorful options to kickstart your resolutions. Head to factormeals.com mental50 and use the code mental50 to get 50% off. That's code mental50 at factormeals.com slash mental50 to get 50% off. And then finally, this is from the Struggle in a Sentence Survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Crian Trottier. I assume he's talking about uh, the old uh, New York Islander hockey player, Brian Trottier, and about his alcoholism. He writes, I don't remember being sad while blacked out drunk once in my life, and about his love addiction. I could cut myself shallow enough not to really endanger my life, but deep enough to be put back in the same facility. I could find her there again, and this time, she'll fall in love with me. I know it's been three and a half years, but maybe she's still a nurse
0: there. That feeling of being trapped in your own life with no way out? All my altars
1: have different handwriting, different affects.
0: I'm somebody in prison. My mom taught me about rape. And
1: nobody on the street.
0: Before she taught me about love. Nobody will ever love me enough.
1: There's two lies. A kind pimp. Yes. The secret shameful life at home.
0: Happiness isn't the goal.
1: That you always just don't talk about. And then there's the front. The goal is meaning.
0: It's hard to go into the dark places. I should have leaned into that feeling and gotten curious about it. Recognize when your fears are driving your behaviors. What you resist gets louder and run toward
2: them. She said, you first. And I said, I might be gay. I was with a girl. And I said, and what do you have to tell me? She said, I'm moving to Florida and this is my last
1: session. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with, uh, we're, we're recording uh, remotely. I'm here with Holly Crumpler and, uh, and her son, Dylan. And you guys reached out to me uh to talk about uh, dissociative identity disorder which holly you were diagnosed at age 51 was it five years ago
0: that's right that's right
1: uh and i just really wanted to do that to reveal your age to embarrass you so <laughs> i hope that sets in and creates another uh personality uh within you. i hope the trauma of that i look you forward never to kn- meeting
0: you never know you never know
1: Um, but in, uh, in all seriousness, I'm really glad that you guys, uh, reached out and, uh, Dylan, um, you guys sent me a link to, uh, a project that Dylan did for his, uh, what it was a college course. Yes. It was my senior thesis. Yeah. And it's a 15 minute short, uh, about a day in the life of somebody with DID and Holly, you helped write it. Um, Correct. And what is the name? There's a psychologist who is using it uh, as part of his uh, class and teaching people.
0: There's actually a lot of clinicians uh, who have started using the film. It's being used by clinicians in several ways. Uh, We have heard about people in various uh, university settings um, in the U.S., and Australia, different places around the world. People have started using it. And also clinicians are using it to train other clinicians um, in practice. We've had a number of uh, sessions that they've held, like a a clinician's private practice will hold it for the general public or for clinicians in their area. So we've done a number of those type of trainings. And then we have um, like Dr. Jamie Marich. She's been a huge supporter of our film and she uses it all the time in her EMDR training. Um, And then clinicians are using it in session with their clients who have DID as a way to talk about, you know, different experiences they might be having. So it's it's getting some pretty broad use, which is extremely exciting for us for the pe- the way it's benefiting people.
1: I have to imagine you probably never anticipated that aspect of it. Uh, I mean, wh- why did Dylan, why did you uh, cr- was it your idea? Holly, was it yours? What what brought
0: Dylan, about- t- Dylan tell your story?
2: Yeah. So it was it was my idea because um, I, I needed a senior thesis film. I needed to make a senior thesis film. And I really couldn't think of anything else uh, that I actually wanted to make other than something on dissociative identity disorder, um, because I think it, it's a highly stigmatized condition. Uh, from Hollywood, and I wanted to to get it right. And also in doing so, it would uh, allow me to understand sort of what was going on with my mom mm-hmm. growing up, mm-hmm. uh, because there were clues here and there that I was able to identify that there was a different identity. But uh, of course, we didn't get that diagnosis until I was uh, 20, almost. So it was it was sort of a healing process for me in that regard, too. But really, it was uh yeah, we had no idea how big <laughs> this this film would end up end up being. It was uh, originally just going to be a, a college uh, thesis film. <laughs> but if I'm going to do something, I'm going to I'm going to do it right. Uh,
1: so, Holly, for the person who um, is unfamiliar with DID, which used to be called multiple personality disorder, um. In, in a nutshell, if you can, we'll get into the details and expand on it later. But uh, just kind of give them a condensed uh, definition of of what it is, if that's possible.
0: Yeah, that's that's a challenge um, because it is a rather complex condition. But dissociative identity disorder is essentially a coping mechanism of the brain in response to severe and ongoing childhood abuse, generally before the age of six to eight. So what happens when you are a young child and you're experiencing horrific trauma, generally sexual abuse, um, it can also be physical abuse or emotional abuse. But um, most people I know have a sexual abuse history who have DID. And um, what happens when you're a small child and you're experiencing this is the brain is overwhelmed by what's happening and it essentially capsules off those memories of the abuse and holds them with one part of the brain. And that part um becomes its own identity. Um, it's in this is part of the reason why the name was changed from multiple personality disorder to dissociative identity disorder is that these are truly separate identities. They have their own names, ages, preferences, interests, genders, sexuality, race, etc. And so again, it's rooted in childhood trauma. It's a way that the brain protects so that The little child who was just sexually abused the day before can get up the next morning and go to school and live a normal life without having to have the constant barrage of those memories. And so the condition is very helpful, but it also creates these amnesic barriers between the parts such that one part doesn't know of the existence of the other part, the part that's going to school doesn't know of the existence of the part that's holding this, this trauma. So that's in a nutshell, you know, what the condition does.
1: And are the identities aware of each other?
0: Well, it depends on where you are in your process of um, diagnosis and healing. Um, But, you know, for 51 years of my life, I had no idea that I had multiple people living in this body.
1: What, and yeah, what would it be like when people would reference something you had done or said, and you had no idea uh, what they were talking about?
0: Yeah, you know, um,
1: or were you always aware?
0: No, <laughs> I, I think that I spent most of my life, not, you know, I, again, I was unaware. Um, That I had more than one person living in my body. And, you know, people would make comments to me about how different I might act in a scenario of, you know, what I was like in just day to day compared to what I was like, maybe in a, a different scenario, like being out partying, I had a very strong partying part. And, um, you know, and I just thought, oh, yeah, you know, everyone kind of has mood states or whatever, but it really was more than that. And I think Dylan can really tell you about his experience of how he was picking up on the existence of different parts in me. Do you want to comment on that?
2: Yeah. Well, uh, well, I guess. Well, I want to sort of answer his question. You don't quite have the same amnesic barriers that many people do. You are somehow we don't know. I guess I don't know why. Uh,
0: Well, I had amnesic barriers of the parts. What also I I didn't have as strongly is complete amnesia as to what had happened. So I remembered a lot of my trauma, whereas there are people who will go 50 years and have no idea that they ever were abused as a child. And then later, as they start to break down the barriers between their parts, they learn about the traumas as well. I always knew I had various traumas as a child, but I didn't remember all the details, and as I started to discover that I had multiple identities, I learned more about those um, different things that had happened in more detail.
2: Yeah, and um, the, and you didn't have the access to, I guess, the emotions that they kept too. Right. But for right. for picking up on on the different parts, uh, like like uh, I don't know. It's it's just sort of I would notice that she would switch, and I would say in therapy, it's almost like she's switching on me, which mm-hmm. is the the term used when she switches from one identity to the other and like some examples would be uh before the diagnosis like so she has this one part called the queen which is a protector part uh, and basically the, the queen comes out whenever the system is uh, being disrespected so mm-hmm. if i'm a little kid and i'm not wanting to if i keep saying no <laughs> or to to you know doing the chores or something then the queen might come out and just be sort of like more of a stern what one might believed to be just a stern mother saying get your button gear and go do the chores um but there was this this sort of just the how fast that sort of mood swing as i perceived it would come across and then how fast she would return to being that previous mood as how i perceived it um that's where i sort of noticed like this is a little different than just standard mood swings because again it's like this emotions here and then it's immediately gone because the one person with all that emotional energy and with that, uh, you know, with that perspective and outlook on the world, they're there. They're protecting the system, stopping uh, me from being disrespectful. And then they're gone because they they came in, they protected and then boom, yeah. they, they've saved the day. But another example of uh, post diagnosis was like we have woods in our, our we're fortunate to have like a, a beautiful woods in our backyard and we, we like to go walk in them. And Holly was talking about, uh, you know, how how Grady, her uh, her husband, my dad, uh, like kept buying sushi from the grocery store. And she's like, oh, it's so expensive and everything. And so she's just she's going on and on about like how she wish, you know, he's a great cook and all. Why can't he just cook some food himself or whatever? But then but then she goes, oh, but, you know, he, he works so hard for us. And he he's, he deserves to be happy. And it's just like, hold on. That's not just simply like a thought change or a paradigm shift, that's one person talking and then another person jumping in.
1: Right.
0: So those are
2: sort of examples of, of how it might come across as just a mood swing or a different uh, perspective, but really it's a, a a complete switch of who is talking.
1: Uh, so there would be like a different vocal intonation, speech pattern, absolutely. Uh, facial expression. Mm-hmm,
2: absolutely. Especially when one of the littles, are out. Uh, one of the the kids. They they definitely. Uh, they they behave like children.
0: <laughs> they, well, they are children. Yes. I mean, that's what these parts are. You know, they literally are frozen in time, and mm-hmm. they um they still think it's whatever time it was when they were created. Until you 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 actually can do more work with them to help acclimate them to the present and help them understand that we're no longer living in you know 1970 when you may have come into existence, um, but. They definitely still, you know, are children. That's who they are. Although some of them, their age sliders and their their age can differ. differ. It, it's interesting because there's so many different types of parts that can be created for different reasons and in different circumstances. Because what happens is when the when the brain starts using this coping mechanism, it figures out, oh, this is really effective. And so it becomes a way of dealing not only with big T traumas like the sexual abuse, but small T traumas also as one goes through their life and and encounter something difficult, then another part may come into creation to kind of deal with that situation. So for example, of of that, like I have a part that um, came into being when I was at the dentist um, when I was pretty young, less than 10. And this dentist was like really scary guy, um, probably not to most people, but I don't know. He seemed really scary to me. We were pretty afraid of a lot of people when we were young. And he, though, we, we were like getting really anxious and screaming. And so to get us to stop screaming, he put his hand over our nose and our mouth. And so we thought he was trying to kill us. It was a very terrifying thing. I mean, as I'm describing, it doesn't even sound like a small T trauma. That sounds like a pretty big T trauma. But it, you know, it was a one time thing that happened with that dentist. And boom, I have this part that was created um, related to that. And who's very terrified of the dentist, although we've done a lot of work and he's not so afraid of the dentist anymore,
2: which is good because our next door neighbor is a dentist, <laughs> <laughs> not the dentist, not, not, not the, the dentist. dentist. Yeah. Yeah,
1: barbecues would be awkward.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: the the process of uh Is it called integration? Is that when you work with a psychologist and they help you um, with these different identities? What what, what does that look like?
0: Okay. So there's a lot in that question. Um, If you look at the treatment guidelines from the ISSTD, which is the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation, there's a a kind of a three-step Process and the treatment of someone who has DID. And the first is phases, safety, and stabilization. The second is reprocessing traumas. And the third, according to those guidelines, is what's called integration. And there's a lot of debate and discussion about what that term integration means. Um, There's also a term called final fusion, which is used sometimes interchangeably with integration. But I think a, a lot of therapist looking at those guidelines um, interpret it and for a long time was kind of a gold standard treatment of, okay, if you have DID, what we need to do with you is we need to integrate or bring together all of those parts so that you can be one single person like a normal person you would be. And Most people that I know who have DID are not in favor of that approach to to working with their system. And I know we've used this term system a couple of times. It's the way we describe the group of people that live in our body. We call it a system. And so, um, you know, the idea of bringing parts together and, not, you know, not having them be separate identities I think once you get to know the different parts within your system and understand why they're there and what they did for you, um, there's a pretty strong appreciation for those parts and the role that they they have played and the roles that they can continue to play that, you know, I myself have no interest in merging together everyone. And And again, you know, my perspective is that that treatment guideline or that goal of final fusion is coming from a kind of a singleton approach of, oh, this is what a normal brain needs to look like. And again, most people I know who have DID aren't really interested in that. What most people I know are interested in are a term called functional multiplicity of, you know, living um, in a functional way with the existence of these multiple people within your body. And so, you know, like as I've done um, I've done a lot of work in the last five years since I was diagnosed. And a lot of that work looked like getting to know who the parts are in the system, what roles they play, why they exist, what traumas they have, and then working with each of them on the processing of their trauma. So, you know, a normal person who's had, when I say normal, a person who's not DID who's not multiple, a singleton, who's going to do trauma work with their therapist. They've got one person working on their trauma processing. In the case case of a DID system, you know, I have 26 different people who have individual traumas that they need to process and work on and, you know, get to a point of not being triggered by those things that are related to the trauma. So there's a, that's that kind of middle phase of doing the, the trauma work to get the parts to be comfortable, to not be activated, to not think that they are in a place where they need to protect the system. Uh, Etc. And then, you know, learning to communicate internally between the parts so that you can coexist peacefully. Uh, because if you have 26 people living in your body, they can have different ideas of what they want the body to do, what the what, what they want the body to eat, what they want the body to wear, how they want the body to have its hair. So it's a process of you know, that's what I mean by the functional multiplicity is learning to coexist peacefully in a way that you're able to collaborate and communicate.
1: Is a large goal within that to uh, help ease the amnesic barriers?
0: Yes, exactly. So, um, you know, and everyone's different in, in how much amnesia they might have or not. Um, but the bringing down the amnesic barriers is what lets parts get to know that they exist and be able to communicate with each other. Because if they don't even know that they're there... Then they can't communicate uh, well. So yes, and and I like Dylan said, I didn't have to do as much work in that space um, as some other people that I know, but um, that is a part of that process: is 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 bringing down those amnesia barriers, remembering the trauma so that you can process them, um, getting to know those parts so that they can communicate with one another.
2: Also, I I think from things we've been learning recently um, about uh, mom's DID is that she might have more amnesia than she thinks uh, but then whenever she goes to think about something that requires you know memory one of the parts might just give her that information immediately Um,
0: right it's
2: interesting like we've been watching we've realized that when watching movies and tv shows we often are asking holly hey so what happened last episode and she it's a little it takes her a while and uh, we come to come to realize that it's maybe because somebody else is watching
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think that's true that's
1: true. Have you always called your mom Holly?
2: That's a great question. Um, I started doing that, actually, I think around the same time when I was in therapy and was saying how like it's like she switches on me um, and and people have like my uncle has commented, how can you call her by your first name instead of mom? Um, and, I, and I think it's because I always recognize that. That's not just mom. Uh, that it's I call her it, that there's somebody else there. So by referring to her as Holly, it it, it is uh, a way to ground her um, and be like, hey, this is Holly, right? Um, <laughs> but also it's perhaps a way to identify. Uh, I don't I don't know, but I've been doing I it for about. Think,
0: a... I think you think of your mom as more than just Holly because there's more than just Holly here. Yeah. And right. Yeah, there's yeah. more than because yeah. sometimes I'll be another part and then he'll refer to me as that part so he might say okay rebecca i'm fine you know like he can recognize oh, rebecca's a partner system that gets very worried about our children um yeah. she's always afraid our children are going to die and something bad's going to happen to them so she will get very overly protective and overly worried about dylan and our other son lee mason and dylan can tell when when she's really getting all worked up yeah. so sometimes you he may say he may call me Rebecca because he sees that that is Rebecca and not Holly
2: or I'll call Rebecca mom. Just so it's like, I'm not calling her out. Yeah. Um. But whenever it's, it's Holly, it's like, just, I guess, to confirm who I am talking to while mom can encapsulate, I guess the whole system.
1: Mm-hmm. I got you. Uh, so when you're before you began to receive treatment or awareness of uh, your different identities, Roughly how often was Holly present and today, how often is Holly
0: present? Hmm. Well, that's an interesting question. I keep saying that because there's so much to it all. Um, you know, I've spent. We we haven't really talked about another part I have named Superwoman um, who actually was. Who was fronting the term is called fronting when the part, whoever the part is, who is, you know, There. Um, speaking presenting it's called fronting so for a large part of our life we really even though people called us holly there was a part of us that um is an identity called superwoman who really ran the show for most of our lives and holly which
2: could be why i call her holly instead of mom because superwoman to me is not mom like she, she's not like a motherly figure necessarily. She's as far as like emotionally it goes. It, she's very much a businesswoman, which could have been why, like, if I didn't feel like I was getting that emotional connection, I would be like, OK, Holly. Right. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah. And superwoman. I mean, I, I was a businesswoman. That's what I did. I, you know, I worked for 25 years. I was a, at a CPA firm and I really was in this kind of get it done part That was so strong within our system that really kept me from getting to know that there was anyone else there because we we had a very significant work addiction and, you know, we figured out very young probably in elementary school that achievement um, equals lots of positive attention. We we got a lot of you know accolades for how well we did in school. And I think that's kind of when our superwoman part took over and was just like, yep, we're just going to keep getting straight A's. We're going to be the valedictorian. We're going to be the number one in our business school. We're going to just achieve, achieve, achieve. And if we keep achieving, no one's going to figure out that we are this bad little girl who got abused because that's how children think about themselves. They think that it is their fault. And if you can you know, do other things to get really positive affirmation. It helps to keep all that shame at bay. And so the superwoman part really is, I think, who ran the show most of our lives. Um, and with a pretty strong dose of the queen um, in our in our adult life, she was around a lot. Um, Re- you know, Rebecca would come in and, you know, then you're going to say, well, who is Holly? I don't think we really even knew who Holly was. Holly, I think Holly really wasn't around much. Um, Because these other parts were really running the show. And what happened to us is, in 2012, we became very physically sick. And we start our, our body just started shutting down. And we had um, just severe fatigue, brain fog, and it had been kind of going on for a little while, but it just got really really bad to a point in 2012 where my body just kind of stopped working and put me into my bed for like 18 hours a day. And it was a really scary time because no one really knew what was going on with us. Um I went from doctor to doctor to doctor and it you know they'd say oh you just have chronic fatigue syndrome, you have fibromyalgia, which are just ways of saying you're really tired and we don't really know what's wrong with you or why. And so we eventually took a couple of years to get some diagnoses that at least were a little bit more instructive in, form, in terms of treatment. we got diagnosed with chronic Lyme disease and with some severe mold toxicity issues because our house, turns out, uh, had a, a bunch of mold issues. So our physical health really became the center of our universe um, for quite some time. And we were just in this constant state of treatment, 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 trying to figure out what to do to where I could actually function. And I actually had to take a disability retirement from my job. I had to stop working completely in 2014. So it's been nine years since I've worked and I am still on long-term disability. But what happened is I finally got my physical health at least to a more stable point. And I think once I did, um, it became a safer place I wasn't like superwoman running all the time and that's when parts started to become a little bit more active and um, letting us know they were there that we didn't know were there so I don't know how much Holly was here before and after and percentages but hopefully that kind of addressed your question
1: what are the different Uh, First of all, the accolades and the uh, positive reinforcement for achievement, did that come from any of the abusers?
0: No, no, I'm just saying in life in general, you know, just. yeah.
1: Are you comfortable sharing who the abusers
0: were? So my primary abuser was my grandfather. I was sexually abused by my grandfather from when I was pre-verbal until sometime in my early teens. Um. So that was my primary abuse.
1: And had your parents been abused uh, or whoever the, the child of your grandfather was, had they been abused as well?
0: So this is my father's father, and I did not tell either of my parents that I had been abused by my grandfather until about 10 years ago. And I did... I finally, I kind of, st- before I even was diagnosed with DID, I started doing some work around my sexual abuse because when I first was seeing this therapist dealing with my severe chronic physical health issues in 2013, she was like, you know, cause I, I said to her, look, I think I just worked myself to death. You know, like I just wore my body out cause I worked crazy hours all the time and a candle at both ends, all ends. 26 ins as it turned out, but, um, I just thought it was, I had just worn myself out. And at my first therapy session with her, where I was trying to deal with this and losing my identity, losing my job. She's like, I really don't think you, you know, you're sick because of your work. She's like, I want to talk to you about your, your childhood sexual abuse. And I was like, okay, um, let's talk about it. And so we pretty quickly, um, started doing some work around, you know, focusing on that and pretty quickly, you know, started sharing with other people. Cause I hadn't really told a lot of people. I hadn't told my very best friend from my, you know, since high school. Um, I hadn't shared it with my parents I hadn't told my sister. And so I started telling people, which is a really helpful thing in trying to get rid of shame, is to share you know, what happened to you that was not your fault, but you think is your fault, mm-hmm. which is why you don't want to talk about it. But I, um, I told my dad at the time, and he said that he was never abused by his father. And I didn't tell my mother um, at the time. I just didn't think it was something that she could handle hearing
1: what are some of the triggers that your identities are are sensitive to and are they different for different identities
0: yes they're they're different because the different identities were created in different scenarios now i have several different Parts that were created related to the sexual abuse by my grandfather. So I have some parts um, that are different ages and they have different memories of different specific, you know, instances of that abuse. And so those different parts can get triggered, much less now, because we've done a lot of work. We've done a lot of EMDR to process different memories and reprocess them. Um, So we don't get as triggered around the sex, sexual type of triggers, but for a long time um, we really could get very easily triggered. And, you know, it could be something like just the feeling of fingers. You know, I could just like touching, even like holding my husband's hand, you know, touching a man's fingers could be a triggering thing for me. I could, I could, you know, have a situation where I could look in my husband's eyes, and I would see a flashback of my grandfather's face. So those types of flashbacks, you know, that just something or a smell, I could smell. Supposedly, something. there
1: is a really strong connection between emotion and smell.
0: Absolutely. Some yeah,
1: of the uh, support groups uh, uh, for incest survivors ask that you don't wear colognes or perfumes.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, definitely definitely like yeah old spice which is my grandfather wore so like if i can get right right and i can get a i could get a whiff of that or something that even smelled kind of a similar you know scent and i could you know you can be right back there so you know things like that could be triggers for parts um so it just you know would depend but like i said you know i have I have a part that was created related to the dentist. So that, you know, going to the dentist was triggering for that part. I have another medical trauma created part where when we were young, we um, cut our finger and had to have it stitched up. And they they strapped us down to this Bozo the Clown board to keep us completely flat. Okay. And I mean, like kids aren't scared enough of clowns, right? So what for whatever reason, they strapped me down to this Bozo the Clown board board and i wanted my mother and i kept screaming for my mother and they were not really that um kind you know in terms of how they were handling it and so i have a part that was created related to that and so um you know medical procedures going to the doctor those sort of things i've had to do a lot of work um on getting through those type of situations and also getting through them without one of those small parts coming out and i've i've had that happen like i um i had a colonoscopy which obviously is a pretty invasive thing and i this was during covid and so when i had had my colonoscopy they wouldn't let anyone come to the recovery room um, cause every, like my, so my husband had to wait out in the car. You couldn't even like come in the building for the procedures. It's like in probably in 2021 when things were still really strict. And so when I woke up from the anesthesia, I was a small child screaming, um, confused about where I was, what had happened to me. Um, cause my eyes were closed. So I was completely in the dark. I somehow didn't realize I could open my eyes and cause I was still halfway under anesthesia. Right. So things like that can happen because that the amnesia takes down the dissociative barriers also, and in part came out and was extremely upset and confused. And, you know, my husband wasn't there to help me. Um, So that was very difficult. And I have since learned if I ever, and I have had another scenario where I went under anesthesia since then, and I did a lot of preparation work with like the doctor beforehand and the anesthesiologist beforehand, and you know, made sure my husband could be there the minute I was out. Um, and it all went fine, you know, and, and, and it went fine because the anesthesiologist took such good care. Um, he really was very trauma informed. And when I had told him, you know, how it was for me, like when he was putting me under. He One, he let me hold that little mask that they, you know, give you Mm to put over your face, which is always like freaks me out. But he let me put that up to my face myself. And then as I was kind of falling asleep, he said, we're going to take good care of you, every one of you. So like he spoke to, you know, the fact that it wasn't just Holly, that there were these other parts and he was reassuring all of us that he was going to take care of us. So when we woke up, we were fine. Now it wasn't a colonoscopy, so it wasn't as invasive. But I think all of that preparation really helped.
1: Yeah, I really wish so many more people in the medical community were trauma informed. Um, it yes. it is shocking the severity and uh, how common the yeah. horror shows that people experience both as children and and adults. Uh,
0: absolutely, absolutely.
1: So. 26 different, uh, identities. How, what, what did the process look of identifying those? And did it begin with, uh, you getting help? Uh, how many were discovered while getting help from your therapist?
0: So I, um, I was diagnosed in like February of 2018, And before that time, there was a period of, I don't know, five or six months that I call the great unraveling, where there were a lot of parts that were presenting and we had no idea what was going on. And it was a very scary, dark time because I was having nightmares and flashbacks and images of very scary things. And I was becoming very quickly suicidal um, and I luckily made my way to a psychiatrist pretty quickly um, within a few months who was able to diagnose me with DID. And that's pretty, um, pretty rare to get diagnosed that quickly. Now, I can say I got diagnosed that quickly, but I really didn't because I've been in there in and out of therapy for years and years and years. And no one ever picked up on in retrospect, what were signs that I had this condition Um, So this is, this is a, and I know this is, I'll get to your question, answer your question, but this is a huge issue because um, there's not enough education and training on dissociative identity disorder. And therefore clinicians are missing the diagnosis all of the time. And frequently people with DID are misdiagnosed commonly with schizophrenia or with borderline personality disorder. Um, And so it's, it's a huge problem that we're constantly not diagnosed correctly. But for me, once I think things started presenting in a, I'll call it a scary way in a way that really needed some serious attention. I was lucky that I made my way to a psychiatrist who helped figure it out within the first few sessions. And she had experience treating people with DID. And so I was very lucky to have found her and
1: so you didn't seek her out for her experience in DID. It was uh kind That's of right. a lucky wow. What? Yeah. What, uh, for two I had no,
0: yeah, I had no idea I had DID. Um, you know, we, I thought honestly, when things started getting really crazy for me, that I thought something was just wrong with my brain because I thought it was a neurological condition because of the prior toxic mold issues in my chronic Lyme because there's a, a thing called neurological Lyme and that can lead to a lot of different issues so my my original assumption was just that my brain had some sort of defect that was neurological and we did go to the neuro neurologi, neurologist the neurologist who, who at the time I was referring to as the zinderbologist because one of the things that was happening is I was speaking in a lot of just nonsense babble. Um, everything was really, really scrambled up for me. And I would, I would say just all of these random things that didn't make sense. I'd make, use words that weren't real words. I would talk in gibberish sometimes. So I just thought like my brain is broken. The neurologist needs to go scan it and figure it out. But the neurologist said, nope, it's a psychiatric issue. And I was just like, it's a psychiatric issue. And that's what sent us to the psychiatrist. And the first one had no idea what was going on. And she just kept saying things to me like, your thoughts aren't aren't real. And um, just, I don't know, the kind of thing she said, looking back, it's just like, okay, they actually are real. Those are my parts. And they're trying to talk to us and tell us something. But she she really had no idea. And I, the second psychiatrist I went to, I, she, there was nothing on her... Page that said anything about DID, and I wouldn't have known to look for it because I didn't know that's what I had. But she did.
1: But you knew you had parts.
0: No, I didn't know I had. I didn't know I had parts. I had no idea I had parts. I just knew that there was a lot that things were that parts, things were happening that now I know were parts presenting because. But at the time, I had no the
1: facts. She Mm -hmm. she was saying these aren't facts; these are imaginings of yours. Whereas you were like, no, this happened. Um, not yeah, these. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But I didn't, I didn't know enough at the time to say that to her. I'm just saying in retrospect, I was just like, yeah. But then I made my way to this therapist slash psychiatrist and she's still my, my therapist. Now I've been working with her for five and a half years. So a psychiatrist
1: who does talk therapy.
0: Exactly. Yeah. She, she does both. And that's not always the case. Right. Um, Which is, it's great. Although honestly, I don't really need much of a psychiatrist for, my condition because there's not medication for DID. Um, There's nothing that, you know, will make your DID quote go away or lessen the severity of your DID. There is medication oftentimes, you know, when you're dealing with a lot of these issues, you might also be depressed, anxious, et cetera. So obviously there's medication that can help with some of the other symptoms, but there's no medication for DID. But my psychiatrist is also... You know, my therapist does my talk therapy and we've been doing that talk therapy and EMDR. We've done a lot of EMDR. So what the way your question was, how did I get to know all of these different parts in the system? So I would be in therapy with her and I, I honestly can hardly remember those early days because it was everything was swirling so much. But I would start to have this sense that, you know, there was a certain part expressing itself and so she would she would help me ask questions and you know try to find out you know who is speaking here and do you have a name and um you know what do you what do you want to say and so she would talk through to the different parts and I would also start doing some journaling and trying to understand who's here and so that kind of went on for a little while but And did you have,
1: was there a conscious name for these different parts? Had, had that always been something that you had kind of kept secret And
0: No, I didn't know they existed. I didn't know any names of any other people that were in here. So there was nothing. My brain had kept them secret through the amnesia of not knowing they were there. Okay. I had no idea. I, Holly, or I, Superwoman, whoever I was living my life at the time, Uh, So I didn't know they were there. And as we got to know them, we learned they they have names. They told us their names. And the way that I really had a breakthrough in getting to know who they were is I actually um, I ended up going to an inpatient hospital trauma clinic that specifically treats people with DID. And that was back in 2019. And it was what
1: is the is the name of that in case there's anyone listening.
0: Well, unfortunately for anyone listening, that trauma um, inpatient hospital is no longer um, operating. It was the Ross Institute um, that was founded by Colin Ross, and it was in Denton, Texas. But he he Dr. Ross no longer has his inpatient clinic in Denton, Texas. He does have an intensive outpatient clinic in Texas, but he does not have an inpatient clinic. And unfortunately, there are probably four or less um, hospitals in the country, psychiatric hospitals that really specialize and know how to handle people with DID. It's 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 really um, not a good thing to end up in most psychiatric hospitals if you have DID, because they really have no idea what to do with you.
1: I would imagine for some of them, if they don't know what's going on, they think of your behavior and maybe change in voices as manipulative.
0: Oh, yes. We can get a reputation as being difficult, um, which is really quite unfair because it's just, you know, different parts trying to express themselves. So it's, yeah. And that's where a lot of people just get misdiagnosed with different things as well, you know, with borderline, etc. cetera. Um, or like when people will say that they're hearing different voices in their head because I can hear different parts talking and expressing things. It's all in my head. They're not all talking out loud. So I'm hearing voices. And so that's where people might get diagnosed with having schizophrenia. Uh, And it's not schizophrenia. We're not hearing voices in the room. The voices are just back and forth in our head as different parts are talking to each other. So when I went inpatient, in 2019 in March of 2019 I was there for 3 weeks at the at the Ross Institute and I did a tremendous amount of work there on discovering the parts and the way that I discovered them there was some I already knew going in there but they had me do this exercise called non-dominant hand journaling and they had a list of questions to ask the parts and I would ask the question with my right hand my dominant hand And then I would answer the question with my left hand, my non-dominant hand. And by doing so, that access is a bilateral access of your brain by using your two different hands. And it's kind of similar to what EMDR does um, in accessing both sides of your brain. And by doing that, I was able to get to know more parts. So like I would have a sense that there was someone there or there, you know, I'm hearing a different voice that's trying to tell me something that I don't recognize and it's not really that clear. And so, you know, I would say, hi, you know, what is your name? And you might say, oh, my name is Susie. And I'd say, well, how old are you? And then my left hand would answer, I am three years old. And so-and-so is helping me to write this, she would say, because parts can share skills in the, of the body. And then I'd say, well, you know, how were you created? When were you created? What do you remember? what do you want me to know what what is your role in our system what are you here to teach me how can i help you so that was the process that i've used to to really get to know the different parts in a way that was really significant
1: and what was it just chance that that and through repetition that the number of different identities uh came forth uh rather than you saying, uh, you know, uh, let's uh, address this potential identity and and try to bring that one out. Was it just just a repetition of doing this exercise, and then yeah. eventually, yeah. you know, no more new ones were coming out.
0: Well, that's not true. So the what would happen is, yes, the repetition of doing the exercise would bring parts out because parts want to be heard, you know, they've been, for, in my case, they've been, you know, stuck in this body for 51 years, not being able to express themselves. And so they want to be heard, they need to be heard, and understood and accepted and loved. So a lot of them, you know, want to be able to share their voice, they're also a lot of them are afraid to share their voice, mm-hmm. because it's not always safe to be seen, right? That's what we learn when we're abused, when we're little, it's not always safe to be seen or heard. So, um, not all of them would just appear as readily as others. And it was, you know, I did that work in the hospital. That was three weeks. I didn't learn about everyone in that time. And so it was a process over a couple of years. And, and then sometimes like, I kind of thought, oh, I've kind of learned about everyone and something else will happen. And it's not necessarily a trigger, but just maybe something that's going on. Another part will I'll have a sense that someone else is there and I'll kind of start asking questions and I'll learn about another part. So I had, I actually just discovered there's a, another person a few couple months ago. Um, so I don't know if, if I found everyone yet. We'll see. There might be parts who haven't, you know, felt comfortable to share yet.
1: Uh, one of the things I do want to ask you uh, is to name some of the parts some of their characteristics but before we do that dylan i wanted to ask what was it like for you during the great unraveling
2: uh whew, the great well hold on, let's see i wasn't here actually for most of the great unraveling well, you took i was remember
0: that, that Thanksgiving. i know
2: i i know i wasn't here for most mm-hmm. most of it i was here for for that thanksgiving um uh because i was off in college in in california so um, I would hear about stuff through like the group chat. Um, and I'd, you know, I would have these phone calls that would be very frustrating because I I don't know who it was, if it was the Queen or, or somebody, but uh the Queen was there for sure on a lot of our phone calls, feeling disrespected, I guess. Um and that's the main thing that I took out of the grit unraveling was hey, um, before the diagnosis, I'm like, whatever's going on with Holly in her brain, it is making her uh very moody um and i don't know bitchy (laughs) (laughs)
0: um
2: it's like you'd have these all these long phone calls and i was you know i having grown up with the queen i'm like i can't hang up on my mom and eventually i was like i'm hanging up on her that was not a good idea um she called me back and was even more mad and i'm like i'm like what if i just don't answer and uh i think that might have made things worse and i know there was a time when I'm like, look, you and I are not talking cuz I need my space. Um
0: oh, Yeah, you broke up with me. Yeah.
2: I, yeah. Uh I'm like I need my space. Um we we can't uh, be just this is this this relationship is just it's just not quite working. Um but then like we were home for Thanksgiving and uh we were in the shopping mall preparing for uh some trip coming up and and like just the queen was just very active and uh like I just felt like she felt like I was being very disrespectful, which I was being a little difficult in the shopping mall, but like it was partially because of just like all that, the energy from, from the queen um, and just how sort of controlling she would be. And, and super combination between her and superwoman. you know, she's trying to find the perfect winter coat for me and everything. And I'm like, it doesn't have to be perfect. I literally don't care about all these color options at all. And I'm like, just let's just get the simplest thing possible. And she did not like that. Uh, she thought I was being, me being disrespectful, me being dismissive of, of her care for me and her trying to get the best for me. Um, and eventually, uh, like I was in like the changing room, trying on some clothes and she's like nagging at me or bugging at me, trying to get me to hurry up and see the clothes and like opening up the door of the room. So I could, so she could see how the outfit looked and I'm like, I, I yelled at her, um, and then she almost left me uh she 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 walked well but I
0: did at first I you went did. got in the car and started to leave them yeah all. she she
2: left the she left the whole store and then got in the car and began to drive away and I'm like that's I'm not like,
0: normal behavior for me by the way
2: yeah she she wouldn't do that normally if we have a fight um it's uh things will come down and we'll talk about our feelings and sort of what happened and why she was feeling that way and i we sort of did that on the way home, but it was more so she just she just yelled her feelings and why, uh,
0: I was screaming. She
2: yeah, she was, I was in a state of rage. Um it and that she was driving and I was in the passenger seat and I'm just like I'm not gonna say anything. I'm just gonna let her just get all these feelings out and I really hope she just does not crash the car, um, <laughs> accidentally while while yelling. Um, but I mean again it it's it's people with DID are not are not violent. Uh, the again the only quote-unquote violence here would just be her yelling at me because she felt disrespected and she was per- being protective of the system. Um, and then later on, uh, just a few months later, when I think she found out, and I didn't really get to, to know until I came home that summer. for
0: Because you were I, in college. I
2: was in college, and, and uh, it was it was great learning about it because when she sat me down and, and explained uh, her whole condition, I just simply said, well, that explains a lot. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> because it was it, it made perfect sense. I'm like, yeah. So when I was saying it was like you were switching on me, it's because you literally were switching on me. And that was not um my mom or Rebecca or whoever's giving the love uh to me uh in the mall. It, it, it makes sense that that was the queen or, uh, you know, feeling disrespected. And I'm like, OK, cool. That's great. Yeah. And, the, right qu- and the queen
0: wasn't really angry at you she was angry at the people who had disrespected her that caused her to come into creation. Yeah. Cause it's, place. it's That's um, where the, the issue is. Cause the disrespect. The, so then your little bit of disrespect would trigger all these memories and just put her into the state where she thinks she's dealing with people that she's not dealing.
2: Yeah. With. Cause it's like, Oh, the, the trigger would be just disrespect. Mm-hmm. The, the emotional me- core memory would be from the past. And mm-hmm. so the, it would feel to her that the past was present with that, the, the modern day disrespect.
1: I think which is also common in people that don't have DI. Yes. You yes. Know, there's a there's a saying if it's hysterical it's historical. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. The first time I heard that I was like that makes total correct total sense. Um yeah. because it's yeah. it's almost never whether it's a, a a fight between people that are married or somebody l- losing their shit at the grocery store it's almost never about the thing it's about the nine things before the thing
0: exactly yes yeah cuz exactly. yeah
2: again this this whole condition is is related to to trauma and unprocessed trauma and all those emotions yeah. um which i guess is a good thing because then just i should not just say just just work through the trauma just just, yeah, just work so through easy. the emotion i mean cuz yeah so, i don't even have did and i have my own trauma mm-hmm. uh not I'm just related going to...
1: bring 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 that up unrelated to oh
0: well,
2: is oh well, I mean it's I mean yeah, having the queen as he a mom was
0: being very gracious in describing you know our relationship, but it's, it's true I mean he he has childhood emotional abuse from due to our unresolved traumas there's definitely that's been an impact, but you can yeah, talk about mean, that. yeah well, I mean
2: well I'll say that the emotional abuse. There from having that kind of emotional. It's not like I, mean, I don't know if there was a different category of emotional abuse because again, I don't want people to think that
0: wasn't mom was. All, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just feel a sense of being like, yeah, my mom who has DID, she was emotionally abusive. It wasn't. I mean, again, it, this brings up a, a larger topic of, of uh I guess how hurt people hurt people
0: exactly, uh, mm-hmm. and
2: how how any people in general who were abusers have been hurt. Um, and you know, I'm not, I don't want to, I don't like saying that she was emotionally abusive, even though she was because, I mean, I guess it wasn't really fully her either. I
1: I think we (laughs) understand that you're not trying to throw her under the bus. You're trying to give weight to what you experienced. Don't let me put words in your mouth, but that, that, um, yeah. But uh, how
0: did we get to this? We got onto this because you said you also had your own abuse, which was unrelated to me.
2: I had my own trauma, unrelated. Yeah, your own trauma. But yeah, I had my own trauma from from. But hold on, how we got onto that? Because was, this was all connected to something. You talked like... about
0: the great unraveling and what your perspective was when I was going through all of that. And we were learning my diagnosis, and it all made sense.
2: Oh yeah, I was connecting to how ev- how other people uh, have their own traumas and stuff and if it's unresolved then of course it's going to come out Mm -hmm. um i think that was the the main thing there
1: yeah and and oftentimes i think it it can present itself as that person disappearing when they need to show up for their kid's life or their partner's Mm -hmm. life it's not necessarily overt and screaming but just they're just not there Mm -hmm. yeah
0: i mean i i think i i was doing everything I could to be a perfect mother because that was Superwoman's whole MO is we did everything perfectly. Okay. That was our objective. And we tried to be a perfect mom, but we just got in our own way and we didn't have the emotional intelligence. We had, you know, we're living such a life of dissociation from reality and you know, not having dealt with any of our trauma and, you know, just trying again to live this life of being a look perfect to look perfect We want everything to look perfect. And, you know, let me just, you know, take you to all the make sure you're doing all that right activities and make sure we're buying you all the things. But I wasn't necessarily able to manage my own emotions in a way that I could be the mom that I wanted to be at that time for Dylan. And I I mean, I was working, you know, 60, 80 hours a week at my job and I was on two different boards and, you know, it was just like, I was trying to keep spinning all of those plates um, and not not taking care of myself either. You know, I don't, I used to think, you know, when people talk about self-care, it was just a concept. When I started hearing people talk about self-care, I was like, what are you talking about? Is that when I go get my manicure? I don't even like to go get my manicure because that's, that takes time. And I've got other things I need to be doing. And like, I didn't understand any of that. So I didn't take care of my body. I didn't take care of anything. I was just running, running, running.
2: Yeah. And I think I remembered what the previous question was about how it affected me. I mean, seeing that that's what Superwoman- was superwoman be my mother that was the model behavior so like i know like for the longest time uh it's like i wouldn't really take care of myself and give myself self-care either um like i would always be you know i wouldn't want to take a break uh i had to just like my mom she was very successful so it it seemed successful. uh successful whatever yeah, that means quotes uh-huh. um in you know with her relationships uh more so the, on the business side financially so i'm like i want to be like like her um possibly also because uh with the queen you know all those standards it's like if i'm not like her then i am bad so i guess that's sort of the emotional uh mm-hmm. uh abuse there but it's it's just interesting it's how for how it affected me was if, if i'm gonna be you know following her steps uh unintentionally uh then Her, the responses of her trauma and her behaviors will carry over into my behaviors. So, if she, uh, you know, is, uh, you know, just working all the time and just has to be perfect, then that makes sense for why I, for the longest time and probably still today, but I've gotten a lot better, struggle with perfectionism and it has to be perfect. And uh, possibly why maybe, I don't know if relationships were. I don't know how relationships, if those are difficult for you at all, but like, I know that like the fact that you wouldn't, uh, like friend people from work on Facebook, like I know that that impacted me, um, because, and then just thinking, uh, like, Hey, I gotta be, I basically, I just thought I had to be professional all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, friendships were, were always difficult and we didn't know if that was just cause whatever was going on with me. Like we, we didn't know. we got me tested a few times to see if like, if I was on the, uh, autism spectrum and we it was concluded. No, I'm, I'm not. So I'm like, huh? So how come I'm struggling socially? Um,
0: well, and you had your own other. Trauma I have my
2: own other traumas that
0: was significant, had a significant yeah, I have impact in all
2: of other that. traumas that are not mom related that have an impact. Uh, but, uh, Shoot, my ADHD got, got me distracted when she interrupted me. There, no, not uh, <laughs> interrupted me when she added to the, to the conversation. But um, you were
0: talking about your social anxiety. Oh yeah, and... just how
2: it impacted me, like. I don't know. I just think it's interesting how other people's how a parents unresolved trauma can affect the child. Absolutely. And even if it's not like direct, like
0: I never hit you, you never hit
2: me. It wasn't like abuse in that way. Just how even her coping mechanisms, mm-hmm. how that model of behavior of what seems to be an adaptive coping mechanism of mm-hmm. just work harder, mm-hmm. how that can impact your child. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, how that impacted my relationships, because I just know that socializing and and uh, connecting with people was difficult because of, uh, possibly from Superman, but also from my own trauma and fear of connecting. Plus, like I mean, we moved. I moved to schools so many times growing up. It yeah. was sort of, it was, uh, it was, it was like, well, why am I going to make friends again if I'm just going to have to to move? And then I'm, you know, some bullying happened, and I'm like, well, why would I? I'm just going to shut myself off from people because uh, it's like, hey, I'm going to just move again anyway. Uh, why get connected or, and hurt or sad once I leave.
1: Would it be fair to say that there have been a lot of times where you, especially before you knew what was going on with, with your mom, uh, that you would feel like you were walking on eggshells around her. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how could you not?
2: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Everything had to be perfect.
1: Uh, and, and I would imagine the unpredictability, the lack of consistency um is a is a real mind fuck to anybody, let alone a kid uh,
2: yes, yeah, and that's yeah, I guess that's the why I always the 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 term the, just that memory of saying she always switches on me is that the core of the mind fuck there of like who am I going to be interacting with today is this right. going to be my kind, loving mother, or is this gonna be the queen who you know yeah is is I mean, she loves me, but it's very much more this is how things are going to be more disciplined and all that. And it was very a strange dynamic because, again, it's like, hey, are you going to be compassionate and let me skip my vegetables? Or are you going to be mean and make me eat these horrible Brussels sprouts? Oh, I'm so, Just so to put mean. it. I know I'm sprouts. I'm giving a light examples. Yes. On- well,
1: Brussels, Brussels sprouts are that's a big T. I don't think yeah. I <laughs> doubt, <but> they're <laughs> badly cooked. They're <laughs> boiled. <laughs> That's a that's yeah. a capital T. Holly, I wanted to to ask you, as you were talking about kind of seeking refuge in your work and accounting, I wonder if is there a comfort in the black and white nature of numbers? Um,
0: well, I don't think what I was doing there. It wasn't so black and white. But I, I do think. Yes, there there is something about accounting that can kind of be that way. There is some certainty and some rules. A lot of what I did in my career, though, wasn't so much that way because I was specializing in employee benefits and compensation and the tax the tax rules for those. So I was really doing a lot more work that was more law, where there's a lot more gray. And honestly, though, that was wasn't as comfortable for me as some of the more black and white um, parts of accounting. Yeah.
1: Um. Is it too much to ask for you to uh, share who the 26 and counting identities are? Maybe starting with the ones that front the most um, and to the ones that front the least.
0: Just their names,
1: their names and maybe a uh, just a blurb about about them.
0: Well, some of them don't want us to talk about them. Okay. Um So um, I'll share about some of them and just kind of see who's comfortable with me talking about them.
1: And and one quick question before you do that, Um, who is there an identity who uh, has been here for the majority of our conversation or have they been here the whole time?
0: Um, Most um, mostly who's been here has been Holly and Superwoman and no one else has really been that close. And when I say close, that means kind of like in my mind that they're listening and caring about him, this, because, you know, most, a lot of them are children and they don't care about this. This is not interesting to them. They'd rather go play. Um, so we have like in our inner world, we have this marshmallow castle where a lot of the the children just hang out and play. And so there's really nothing about what we're talking about that would interest them enough to get involved in this conversation and and be listening or, you know, wanting to say anything. Now, if you pull out a unicorn and start letting us see the unicorn, then we're going to, you know, Susie's going to get really excited about that. And she would then be closer and, you know, wanting to talk about that unicorn so it's not only been holly and superwoman and we stay blended up a lot to where it's not really clearly like oh i'm holly or oh i'm superwoman that we're blended a lot between holly and superwoman
1: would it be would it be fair to compare it to uh, a group of people talking at a cocktail party and somebody weighs in on one thought and then you know somebody else weighs in on another thought
0: kind of kind of but It's almost like i don't know
1: i mean not everybody
2: would show up to the party unless like say somebody was on facetime maybe and like all of a sudden the people on facetime like on the other end who aren't in the party they heard something uh then they quickly run over to the party and then to either listen in more or to actually Mm -hmm. contribute
0: yeah yeah and it's interesting like i said sometimes they can just pop up like if, if susie sees a unicorn you know, she can just pop up. Other times they might be kind of floating nearby and they hear something they're kind of listening in. Or like, I'm if I say one of their names, then they might be like, what are they saying about me? And um, so I'll tell you. About, so we've talked about Holly and Superwoman a lot. We've talked about the queen um, who, you know, really envisions herself as like the queen from Sleeping Beauty. Like she is magnificent with her big crown and um
2: wait which would maleficent or like the, the sleeping Beauty's queen no
0: the queen okay oh actually no, no she's yeah the, it's the queen of hearts from yes, uh, alice in wonderland yes yeah, so i started thinking about maleficent um the the queen of Hearts. she's more like the queen of hearts from alice in wonderland our queen is really yes um but she doesn't see herself like that she sees herself more like that other queen but she acts more like the Queen from Alice in Wonderland, off with their heads, right? So, that's the Queen, and she's getting annoyed at us talking about her um, because, again, that, feel, that felt disrespectful that the way we're talking about her. So, we don't want her to get mad at anyone. Um, and again, she doesn't, she doesn't really get act the way that she used to very often, but she will. Like you can tell if you, if Dylan says something and she doesn't like it, she might get a little bit. I'll get a little strained with her, and I
2: still might not r- recognize it's the queen because I'm just right. like, oh shoot, I just said something that you know that might make anybody you know unhappy. So then I'm like, okay, that's just mom being unhappy. But then it's like, oh wait, hold on, that was actually the queen getting maybe yeah. a little protective. All
0: right, we, talk, All right. we, to, we talked. We needed. We talked about Rebecca, um, that she she actually was created when we had a miscarriage. Between Dylan and our younger son, I what, we were at the doctor and I was 20 weeks pregnant and they were doing an ultrasound and we learned that that baby did not have a heartbeat and that was extremely traumatic. It was actually the first time in our lives that we kind of thought, oh, we don't have control of the world. Um, before that, we really did like think we were in control of everything. So that's when Rebecca kind of came to be and Rebecca is very meek. She kind of looks like she's wearing a dress from Little House on the Prairie or something. She's just very much like this meek wo- young woman and she gets very worried about our children and so, you know gets very anxious if that they're going to die or something bad's going to happen and um
2: which which any child might just think that's just my mom worrying about me. because right. So many moms do that, but
0: but for us, it's it's different. It's different. It's different. Um, like I said, you know, she has a kind of, and she speaks like my voice is very different when I'm Rebecca. It's very soft and more nurturing, and um, so that's that's Rebecca, and we've done a lot of work with Rebecca to not be as anxious about the children. Um, but you know, when like. All of that, when Dylan was talking about his trauma from us, that's really hard. That's really hard for Rebecca to listen to that. We were getting uncomfortable. Like, that's just really hard. Because, you know, I mean, obviously, what mother doesn't have shame thinking about having a negative impact on their child, right? So that's, we've had to do a lot of work around The shame of how we've impacted our children, but I think Dylan's turned out pretty well, but it was, you know, it's been, it's been a lot of work, a lot of work together, a lot of therapy together, a lot of therapy individually to get through all of that, to forgive ourselves, um, because we were doing the best that we could do. Um, it wasn't our fault. We were abused, you know, we didn't ask for that. Um, we were doing the best we could do. And I think that's all anyone can do.
1: And the fact that you're working on yourself now that you are aware, I think that's the ultimate amends is yeah. saying, I'm going to put the effort in to try yes. to see that I don't repeat my behavior. That's right. Rather that's than fair. stewing in self-hatred, which is really kind of, uh, you know, we mistake, we lie to ourselves and tell ourselves that that's discipline, but it's really just a form of self-obsession.
0: Yes. Yes. Um, I have some teenage parts. I have one named Methuselah, and he is a very angsty teenage boy with black, oily, stringy hair. Um He likes knives a lot. And when we were going through our really dark times, he I kept having all these visions of knives all the time. Um, he always wanted to cut us. We luckily did not cut ourselves very much, but he was always wanting to cut us or stab a knife into our chest. Um, and he the most
1: violent of the identities, only to to, to me.
0: He's never been violent towards anyone else.
2: And that's how it. That's um, how it is with yeah. the idea. It's not like the media where they're going to be murderers. That's and
0: yeah. It. And I I'm glad you said that because I think it's really important to say that over and over again because most people. If you're listening, if people are listening to this podcast and they're not familiar with this condition, their exposure to it has likely been from Hollywood, who's done a huge disservice in taking this old trope, starting with Jekyll and Hyde and having a split personality and always having one of them being this violent murderer. It's like, how many times are we going to do this? You know, how many times are we going to tell the same story? And and it is a very complicated condition and if you're not familiar with it it just seems like this is just crazy how can you have 26 people living in your body but it's real and we are not violent killers we or we are people who are abused as children people with DID that's how you get it you're abused as children either sexually physically emotionally usually all of the above and so we're the ones who have been hurt we're not the ones that are Violent killers. But that's what Hollywood likes to do. They love to sensationalize the condition. I mean, split. Oh, my gosh. You know, Andy <laughs> turns into this monster being um, after he's kidnapped people. Um, and then, you know, that most recent one, Apple's The Crowded Room. Um, let's Dylan's again. No one's
1: shaking his head. now. like yeah, because
0: again, <laughs> he's he's Billy Mill. It's it's, it's oh, loosely based on the story God. of Billy Milligan, and again, he's attempted murderer He doesn't murder anyone in the yeah.
2: Hey, crowd. we're, we're being progressive. He only attempted murder.
0: He didn't. <laughs> yeah. He didn't actually
2: get away with it. He only attempted murder. Oh yay! Oh,
0: well, and then they set the they set the show in the eighties, in the seventies, actually. When they're
2: not going to have any accurate
0: information,
2: right. to, it, to to share.
0: Yeah, it was awful. It, it, was, it horrible. was horrible it's just more perpetuation of the stigma so when we and we're talking is about
1: Cibble one of those movies as well
2: is, is one of them it's uh i mean it, it's been fictionalized as well as it's kind of uh, a little bit of torture porn mm-hmm. um yeah. but yeah unfortunately people people that's like that was the go-to before split right of hey you have oh did is that like sybil and it's like mm-hmm. Not a good example.
0: And then there's the United States of Tara, which was a series, a TV series, but and she's
2: not a murderer. She's not a murderer, but, but it, they get it completely wrong. And like whenever she switches, it's very dramatic. She goes into the bathroom, she changes puts on, her clothes. She changes her clothes. She puts it's, and then I mean, one episode she does hit her child, um, and so there's still violence in that regard. But it's sensationalized, and they try to be funny with it, and uh, that's
0: there's just really never been a film, I, I shouldn't say at all, because there are a couple like that one Australian film, um What If It Works, that one is a decent depiction where they're not sensationalizing or making her a murderer. It is very rare though that you get a depiction that's, you know, a I'll say a, a movie that's in the mainstream mm-hmm. in this country that is a narrative film that depicts someone with DID in an accurate way that's not sensationalized and they're not violent. So I had to say all of that because you asked about, you know, Methuselah and the, and the violence. Yeah. So what, are, what vi- are some
1: of the, some of the other ones?
0: Yeah. So also um, I have a bunch of p- child parts. Um, one of them is um, named uh, Mary Charlotte. And Mary Charlotte was actually created when we were watching Charlotte's Web. It was the first movie we went to without my, without my parents, my sister and I went with some friends and we're, I was pretty young and we were watching Charlotte's web. And at the end, spoilers, Charlotte dies. And we were horrified by that. Like the, the, it was like our first exposure to death of, you know, what does that mean when someone dies? And it was this Charlotte who was this mother character. So that Charlotte, Mary Charlotte is a part of us who holds grief. um, And, also loves animals a whole lot and does not want us to eat animals. So that can be challenging because other parts of us want to eat animals or our doctor wants us to eat animals for our physical health. That's Mary Charlotte. And Susie, I mentioned earlier, uh, Susie uh, was actually created, related to the the sexual abuse with my grandfather when we were young. And she, though, um, she's a little ball of joy. And she's actually one of our most active child parts. Most of our other child parts don't really front very often. And we've kind of gotten to this point where a lot of them have kind of come together in a way where Susie kind of speaks for the children a lot of the times. And we don't really, Susie's really only out when we're at home with our family with, you know, where she's comfortable with them and she's comfortable that, you know, it's a safe place for her to speak out loud yeah
1: anything else that you would like to as if that's not enough that you'd like to share before before we wrap up
0: um do you want to talk about what we're doing now yeah absolutely amigo well i'll I'll just say i mean at the very beginning i know we've talked a lot about the condition but at the very beginning of the the interview we were talking about the short film and that dylan made the short film
1: petals of a rose
0: petals of a rose. And, and we'll put the
1: link to that in our show notes.
0: Awesome. We'll give you our Facebook and our Instagram and our it's 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 freely available on Dylan's web website. We created a website to share it with the world. And we went public with that in February of 2023 this year. This year and uh, at a conference called the Healing Together Conference that's sponsored by an Infinite Mind and this is the largest gathering of people who have DID and their supporters and clinicians who treat DID. Uh, it's it's held every year down in Orlando, Florida, and it's an it's an amazing conference. And so this year we actually screened the film at the conference, and then Dylan and I did a Q and A session after the conference. And concurrent with the conference, we made the film publicly available, and people started sharing it all over the world. Because as we said, there is nothing out there that people who have DID can watch and go, yes, that is what my life is like. And have it feel to be to feel seen and validated and to feel normal. These are kind of the those are the top comments we get from people about the film. And not
1: sensationalized.
0: Just, yeah. It's just I feel like I'm not crazy. This is, you know, I'm I'm not alone. Um, I'm, I'm just normal. This is what it's like to live with this condition. So because of that, people started sharing it all over the place and all over the world. And at that conference, there were, it was a hybrid conference. So there were actually people watching from 16 different countries. And so now it's been watched by people in 112 countries. We've had the, um, subtitles translated into multiple languages right now we have
2: by people in the community coming to us and offering right asking so that they can share with people in their country right
0: wow. so we have chinese
2: uh we have french, french-
0: german, german spanish portuguese uh there's something else for me. oh russian um we have people right now working on Polish, Ukrainian, Turkey, ja- Japanese, Turkey. We just got
2: the Japanese subtitles the other day. Actually.
0: Yeah. So it's, it's it
1: must be very gratifying.
0: Oh, it just feels so good to be helping people, you know, feel seen because this condition is just so stigmatized because of Hollywood and because of the lack of understanding within the mental health community. There are still A lot of therapists and psychiatrists who do not believe this is a real condition okay i imagine there are
1: people who have listened to this episode who are rolling their eyes and they're like oh she's just seeking attention mm. and she's gaslighting her son and he's going with this because he doesn't want to put up a fight
2: yeah so so to that i'll say sort of what i said earlier today on this topic uh and so First question to people who don't believe DID is real, do you not believe in the condition or do you not believe that a uh, 1.5% of the population experienced extreme childhood abuse bef- that, uh, that, created that created this condition? Right. Because in not believing in this coping mechanism, you are uh, allowing for that abuse mm-hmm. to take place. You are saying, I'm not going to believe this because it's too difficult for you, an outsider who did not experience any of that abuse right. yourself. And so you're you're saying this isn't real and you are uh, enabling abusers to get away with that.
0: Yeah, it's you know, I think people don't they don't take the time to understand, you know, what it really is and that it's possible. And, you know, if you get to know people who have the condition, it's, it's the most lovely community of people with DID. We know a lot of people with DID all over the world, and they're all incredibly kind, loving people who you know are just working hard to get over the fact that they were treated horribly as children um but you know it's it's the brain did this amazing thing that's why it's it it's it exists it's it's really phenomenal right that the brain can do this to not have the Holly part know about what happened to Susie, so she can go to school, so I think if people would just allow for the possibility that there are things that brains can functions in a way that's different than your brain functions, you know um just to allow for that possibility and you know be open to that because it again, it's a coping mechanism that's very very helpful, so uh it is very very gratifying that people within the d i d community are feeling seen and heard, and they're all saying to us. We want more. What's your next thing? So tell them what we're doing now. Dylan. So
2: now we're making a, a longer version of the project. It's uh, we don't know if it's going to be a film or a, a mini series. I don't want to make it a multi-season show, probably because multi-season shows might not get picked up for the after the first season. And I'd like to, you know, have a, a nice conclusion. Hmm. Um, But, yeah, we've been in the process of 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 interviewing a bunch of people. Um, Actually, I, I just came home from California because my my lease was up and I'm like, hey, uh, Hollywood is also on strike, <laughs> so I'm gonna, you know, maybe take this time to, to work with mom. So we took a, a, we were in the car from California to North Carolina, 46 hours of constant work on on the the show. So if anybody is listening to this with DID, um, we we're trying to get to know as much experience uh as many people's experiences as possible. So if you want to
0: just write into right into the website. Yeah. Yeah. And people... I would
1: love I would love to if you can put me in touch with uh, a couple of uh psychiatrists who specialize in this, I would love to have them as a guest.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Therapists. Um do you care if it's a psychiatrist or a therapist? Because no. I know a lot. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, we definitely um can put that out and ask if any of them are interested. But yeah, I have a whole list of them. Um we like I said. We're networked in with a lot of people in the community, and we're we're actually interviewing quite a few therapists um, as part of our development and research for the the sh- movie slash series. Uh,
1: apologies about the audio getting cut off there. That's why I I faded it out. Um, but many thanks to uh, Dylan and Holly. We are going to take a quick break and see if we have any sponsors. This is from the struggle in a sentence survey, and this is filled out by. Uh, person who calls himself beef liver, and uh, about suicidal ideation. They write, The hardest thing I've ever done out of love is to stay alive every day, and you'll never know about having borderline personality disorder. The world ends every day. Give us a snapshot from your life that highlight your struggles. My job is being a food bank manager in a small town. Today I left work three times to cry in my car because I wanted to die so bad. I'm jealous of my clients who die on a weekly basis of exposure or drug poisoning, and I hate myself for it. Wow, that is intense. Thank you for thank you for sharing that. I'm sending you sending you some love. And speaking of loves These are some loves from Seamus, and uh, Seamus writes, I love the sound of rain on a corrugated roof when sleeping in a tiny house. I love when my sister's husky almost tackles me uh, when they're so excited greeting me at the door. I love the times when I was younger, spending multiple hours talking to the right person on my Nokia brick phone. Uh, I love the unmistakably spiritual feeling of being in a crowd of thousands at a protest, shutting down a city block, and in the moment it seems like anything is possible and injustice is not inevitable. I love that perfect bank shot on a pool table and half the pub erupts with, Oh, shit! I love the feeling of sending a rock-climbing route that I've been working at for years. I love long, long walks through the forest with a friend when moments of panic feel a world away and I'm just the perfect distillation of myself. Those are great. Thank you. This is from the shame and secret survey, and this is filled out by um, a non-binary person who refers to themselves as Zootopia. Zootopia. They identify as gay. They're in their 20s. Uh, They say that they were raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, They were the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Um, Just small things from strangers like getting groped on the subway or non-consensual sexual dancing in a club, but I still think about it years later. Uh, they say they've never been physically abused, but they've been emotionally abused. Uh, I am an only child and I was the mediator and couples counselor for my parents' dysfunctional marriage from the age of five or six. I was also physically neglected as a result of their physical or mental illnesses. It really fucked me up in ways that I'm still discovering like a disastrous Russian doll. (laughs) oh i'm not I'm not laughing at you i'm laughing at how wonderful the uh the analogy is any positive experiences with abusers I recently moved back to my hometown and see my parents frequently. I have a good time with them now that we're all adults, but they think they did an amazing job raising me, and it's tough to balance that with how I really feel darkest thoughts i've struggled with self harm for more than ten years. And I find it really embarrassing that I still think about hurting myself regularly as an adult. I also daydream about suicide as a way to help me fall asleep at night, but I would never act on these fantasies. It's just a comforting backup plan. Darkest Secrets. I have a vomit kink that I've never told anyone about, and anyone is in caps. Uh, By the way, uh, you should listen to, if you're listening to the episode with Melissa Broder uh, from uh, several years ago. might might be six or so years ago, but her last name is spelled B-R-O-D-E-R, and uh, she also has one, and she talks a little bit about it. It's not the focus of the interview, but you are not the only one that that has that. Um, Where did I leave off? Uh, it started as a fascination as a young kid because I was severely neglected because of my mother's stomach issues. Nothing sexual happened when I was a kid, but it slowly turned sexual as I became an adult and I find it horrifying. Is it normal for kinks to come out as non for, out of non-sexual trauma? It is. Uh, I feel like something in me is broken. Well, you know one of the things that um, my therapist, the, the words they use to describe it is that either wires got crossed or there's been an imprint uh, on us. And I I think that radical self-acceptance and understanding what is two things I think are important when we look at what our sexual turn-ons are is to keep in mind, is it fuck what other people think, Um Is it it degrading the quality of our lives or disrespectful to someone else? And if the answer is yes to either of those things, then I think it's worth talking to someone about not to try to change it, but uh, maybe there's stuff that needs to heal within us. Again, not to change it, but... um, I don't like to think of it as broken, Um, and most people I know, they've got some kind of kink that is related to or quasi-related to um, something that makes them anxious, that is often against their moral code. And I've mentioned it many times on the podcast, but there's a book about this. By Jack Morin, called called The Erotic Mind. And anybody who's got anxiety about their their kinks or their turn ons, I I encourage you to read that book. I think you'll find it to be uh, enlightening and comforting. Uh, What, if anything, would you like to say to someone that you. Oh, did I skip over something? Um. Uh, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Reading stories about people who are physically ill turns me on, and sharing that feels disgusting. Uh, That is so uh, common. So common. What, if anything, would you like to say to—and when I say that is so common, how you feel uh, about it and being disgusted by it and wishing that it was different. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my uh, partner—I would like my partner to know how much I struggle with self-harm and disordered eating. We both dealt with these issues as teenagers, but she's grown out of it, and I haven't. I know she would be supportive, but I'm so embarrassed— Man, we got to deal with the ego if if we want to process shit. It, it wants to keep us fucking frozen and looking good. And uh, how's that working? What, if anything, do you wish for being able to exist peacefully in my brain? I really believe that's doable. It takes a ton of work, but um, I really believe it's doable. Have you shared these things with others? Some I have, and it went okay. Some I haven't because of shame or embarrassment. How do you feel after writing these things down? Like I'm more fucked up than I thought. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? If beating yourself up worked, it would have worked by now. Wise words. Thank you for that. Uh, These are some loves filled out by Paint It Black. And they were I love the feeling of choosing the next book I want to read. So many choices to consider. That is a great one. I love spotting wild animals such as deer, turkeys, or great blue herons on my commute to work. And watching my adult children show that they care for one another, one another makes my heart happy. Oh, I really, I love all of those. Those are great. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by uh, somebody who calls themselves, trans woman who calls herself, still not sad enough to be some kind of famous artist, I guess. Uh, They identify as pansexual. They're in their 20s. Uh, She says that she was raised in a stable and safe environment. Never been sexually abused, uh, and she writes, I've never been the victim of sexual abuse as far as I know, and I think by the age of 26, I'd at least have an inkling of it if I had. So I feel pretty sure of my having said that I haven't. It can pop its head up later than that. It did, it did for me at, like, age 48. Uh, she is not sure if she's been physically or emotionally abused, uh, darkest thoughts. Not that I am unwilling to admit it to the right person, though I haven't mentioned these things to my therapist for the last five years, but I have a lot of thoughts around sex that I can't make much sense of, at least as far as figuring out where they come from. For as long as I can remember, I've been sexually turned on, by infantilization and degradation and whatnot. Whenever I'm looking for something to get me in the mood, I have two main fantasies. Firstly, to just be held in the arms of a person much bigger than me and to feel just safe and cared for. And secondly, and this is the weird one, I discovered while being with my unfortunately now ex that I have a serious kink for nursing and specifically to be masturbated while nursing from a woman larger than me. And then parentheses, never being masturbated like a guy. Anything sexual involving my dot, 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 unwanted equipment makes me want to curl into a ball and cry. Just actually seeing that I've typed these words leaves me feeling strange. Darkest Secrets I still struggle, though not daily anymore, with wanting to cut myself. I started when I was 17 as a way to justify my feelings to myself. And now, while I only occasionally think about it, especially when I've been drinking, it is still very much something that I struggle with. There's just something about the pain and watching my blood flow down my arms and legs that I find incredibly relaxing when I'm at my nerves end. Despite years of, quote, being better and growing as a person in regular therapy, I still have days where nothing more than a five-hour shift at my job leaves me wanting to just go home, drink half a fifth of vodka, and spill as much of what's inside me as I can down the shower drain. Even as I type this, I find myself struggling with the urge. I haven't allowed myself to keep... Razor blades in my house for years because of this. I also find myself desperately wishing that I had some actual severe trauma in my past to warrant my feelings. I wish that I'd been raped or beaten or otherwise abused. I just want this all to have a quote cause, unquote, I can point to. I know that it's intellectually idiotic to want these things, but I still have days where I desperately want the clarity. Of some traumatic event to point to. I feel terrible writing this while knowing that the lives of those who have actually lived through those horrors are something I can't actually fully grasp, though I've heard many such stories listening to this show for the last five years or so. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Like I said, I just want to be dot, 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 coddled, I guess. I want to be with someone that makes me feel safe enough to just completely let my guard down and for them to just take charge of me and tell me what to do. I have a serious praise kink. I want to be told what to do and reminded of what a, quote, good girl, unquote, I am for having done it. Then I just want to lay back while my partner does whatever they want to me while reminding me the entire time that I'm, quote, their good little girl, unquote. Then I just want to curl up in their arms and feel small and protected. Writing this makes me feel like a bit of a pervert. I'm also pretty turned on. Where the fuck does this come from? I think it sounds really fucking sweet. I do. And it it makes me kind of feel sad that that you shame yourself for... Something that's so human. And so, I mean, is there anything more beautiful than wanting to be held and loved and seen and accepted? Um, What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my dad, I love you, and if it wasn't for your friendship, I probably wouldn't have made it to as old as 21. I know you'll probably never see me as your daughter, but I can tell you honestly that every single time you and I set off on some bird-watching adventures or just sat in the garden that we planted together, drinking beer, watching the hummingbirds, and listening to music, those were the only happy moments of my childhood and young adulthood. And every time, whether or not you could see it, you were sitting next to your daughter, I was fantasizing about it, having been born a girl instead of a, instead, having been born a girl instead it of a boy. I think there's a typo in there. Every time I just never told you. It doesn't help that you're misogynistic as fuck and you make so goddamn many sexist comments that I can't tell if you're joking or not or if you ever were. It's hard to tell if you're joking when you say things like, women are inferior creatures, even though it's been out, I've been out to you for years, and I'm standing right next to you. That is some really fucked up shit. And I don't think you need to point to some, you know, being raped or something else. I mean, super fucked up, the stuff that your dad is saying. And it doesn't have to be dramatic or something that you can take somebody to court over. What, if anything, do you wish for? I just wish to have been born the, quote, right, unquote, gender. Having to constantly fight so hard to have what most people don't think twice about is exhausting. Life is hard enough no matter when and where you're born. This whole being at war with your basic anatomy all the time thing is too much. It sucks having an adverse reaction to the physicality of one's own body. It sucks feeling like shit for not having periods or being able to get pregnant in the parentheses, because for some reason the emotions I feel at not being able to bear my own biological children are fundamentally different from those of cis women, question mark. Uh, I feel constantly on the outside of humanity. I'm not woman enough to be a part of womanhood, and I'm not man enough to be a part of manhood, not that I'd want to be. It's just a weird outside. I'm just a weird outsider, Always. Have you shared these things with others? I've been in therapy for years, but I've never touched on anything deeper than figuring out gender stuff. That's what moved me to get into therapy in the first place. I've only recently come to realize that I may have some deeper problems than I thought. Though honestly, I'm a very open person as a matter of my personality, and not much about what I've written actually bothers me outside of just telling my dad how I feel. I just wish... I had firm answers for feeling as fucked up as I do. But even that phrasing feels juvenile in a way. How do you feel after writing these things down? Relieved. I've never actually written these thoughts down before. It feels good to see them actually written out. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. And I suggest this often, but... Um, maybe in your next therapy session playing portions of this uh, for your therapist if it's hard to put into words, and then maybe getting your therapist's feedback on a way to convey any of this to your dad if they feel like that's a safe or, or healthy choice. I don't know. I'm not a therapist, but I did cook chicken on basic cable. Hello, and speaking of hello, this is an email that I got from Zane, and he writes, Hello, I hope you are well. I have gone to your website and read several blogs, and I feel they touched the realm of my profession and expertise. I genuinely appreciate the awareness you are creating with a meaningful content on your website. I would very enormously like to be a part of it, through guest posting. I'm Zane, and I'm a digital marketer and technical writer. Uh, well, first of all, uh, Zane, I want to congratulate you on building your profession's realm. That's a hugely large undertaking. And then I very enormously appreciate you reaching out. Um, it's incredibly, largely consider it. Um, And should I decide to move forward, I will hugely, behemothly send an email to your profession's reality. And then finally, these are some loves filled out by Vigilante Beauty. And uh, they write, my youngest daughter's excitement when I pick her up from school and she runs to me while simultaneously yelling, Mommy. I soak that up. When my oldest daughter hugs me, she's not usually a hugger, so it's a big deal. Taking long drives and getting lost whenever possible. Windows down, good loud music, singing my little heart out. If I'm not in a music mood, I love listening to the podcast. I'm so grateful for this podcast and visiting the dispensaries when I drive north to visit family, and being under a clear sky on a full moon, crisp, cool air, no light or sound pollution, so the stars are big and bright. Love it. Thank you to everybody who takes the time to go fill out surveys. Um, If you've never done it, that would be an awesome way to support the podcast. Uh, Our website is metalpod.com. Another way that you can help the podcast non financially is uh, subscribe to it. Whatever your uh, podcast listener is, podcast player, um, yeah, hit subscribe and download. Download all the episodes. That would definitely help um, you. I've been getting nice feedback that you guys enjoy the music that I make uh, running at the end of the podcast. Uh, So this is a uh, song I did called Abby Bongos, and I hope you enjoy it, and we'll see you next week.